You fool, he said. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders, the most famous of which is this, never get involved in a land war in Asia. But only slightly less well known is this, never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. Cue the maniacal laughter and then falling over dead, right? Okay, you already know what I'm talking about, right? I hope you do. If you don't, this is your altar call. Get right with Jesus and then go watch The Princess Bride. Um, the character Vizzini, played by Wallace Shawn, probably, probably my favorite character in The Princess Bride. It's very, very hard because, I mean, Fezzik and Indigo, they're close seconds. Like that whole group together makes that movie for me. Okay. It's a combination of his inflated ego and his snarkiness and his quotability in the movie, frankly. Um, even people who haven't seen the movie will still bird out when I say, he didn't fall? Oh, come on, guys. It's not that early. It's already 1030, okay? He, what's the word? Thank you. Okay, he, let's try it again. He didn't fall? You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Okay, all right, good. All right, we're here. Good. Inconceivable. Unable to be imagined or grasped mentally. Unbelievable. Impossible. Preposterous. Even absurd. Inconceivable. If I had been in Judah in the 8th century BC, with Assyria, the superpower of the day, bearing down on me and my neighbors to the north in Israel. And I had Egypt, the other second superpower of the day, coming up from the south to try and block them from taking over everything. And they were drawing battle lines in my backyard. And Isaiah comes along with this prophecy about how I should keep my knees from knocking and keep my hands from trembling because everything's going to be okay. I would be saying that word inconceivable. Are you kidding me? We're going to die. We're this little nation and they're just going to squash us like bugs. We need to make every kind of like political and diplomatic and we need to do everything in our power to keep from just getting squished when these guys come together and start a war in our backyard. If I'm in the leftovers of Judah in the 6th century BC, living amidst the ruins of of a Jerusalem that's been ransacked and destroyed by Babylon with no king and no temple and no direction like Jeremiah or Ezekiel living there among the exiles. And someone unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and says to me, now listen, this wasteland is going to bloom someday. Where you see weeds and dry ground now, there's going to be flower gardens where you see a desert full of jackals and vultures feeding on the carcasses of the starved and dehydrated animals and people, there are going to be rivers and marshes and swamps like teeming with life and growth again. Where there's been death and deformity and destruction, God is going to bring healing and restoration and resurrection. And where you see ruins, there is going to be a city of God again. And where you see this deserted trail with nobody there, it's going to be a highway. It's going to be like a four-lane downtown LA, but one direction. Everyone 
streaming in all the exiles of Judah coming home. And not just them, it's going to be a highway that draws all the people of God, every tribe, every nation, everywhere, back home again. I would be saying the same word. Inconceivable. You can talk all you want, I just don't see it. I just can't see it. If I'm an unwed teenage girl from a backwater town in Galilee, and I'm being told that somehow, in ways that I cannot even understand, that I am now pregnant by and with the very essence of God, who is taking on flesh by the power of His Spirit, and that I should not be afraid of being slandered or exiled or even being labeled as adulterous and sinful and killed with heavy rocks. Because of this thing that I have zero control over. And I shouldn't try to lie about it. I shouldn't try to cover it up. But I should proclaim the story of God's faithfulness. Somehow I should accept it and dive into a promise that not only is God going to take care of me, but even bigger, I need to dive into a greater promise that this is the turning point in history of all creation and all the things that God has been promising through his prophets for hundreds and even thousands of years is now assuredly coming to pass because of this strange, unplanned Pregnancy, this child, this birth. You already know what word I'm going to be using, right? Inconceivable. Even if the guy is glowing that is telling me this and says his name is Gabriel, it is still inconceivable. You can send your messenger all you want, and I will say, okay, I still don't understand it, and I still don't see how it works. It is not such a big stretch for me to echo the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church when he says, As it has been written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human heart has conceived, is what God has prepared for those who love him. I don't know exactly where he gets this quote. He says, as it is written, and then we don't get a scripture reference. Thanks, Paul. But if you look at the second half of Isaiah, especially chapters 52 and 64, you see the heart of this quote. Just because our eyes can't see the restoration of the things that we hope for, just because we can't hear those words of peace that we long for, just because we're in a place that doesn't look at all like the fullness of God, and we can't conceive how on earth we get from here to there. We can't conceive from how we get to where we are to where his promises does not mean that God hasn't already figured out the path and the direction and is leading us gently there. Even when it doesn't feel like it. Especially when it doesn't feel like it. And that is, I think, the heart of joy that we're talking about in this season of Advent, this season of anticipating the coming of Christ. How do you have joy when it's been so long? Because joy is resting in the reality that God is already doing for me 
Not just what I can't do for myself, but what I can't even imagine for myself. What is inconceivable for me is already being conceived by God. And the proof is Jesus. The proof is that God has already conceived the inconceivable. The Word has been made flesh and has dwelt among us. If he can do it once, why can't he do it again? If he did it for a little while, why can't he do it forever? Hmm. I don't know how much we think of joy that way. This, this reality that God is already doing for me the thing that I cannot even understand. This is not, this is not watered-down theology. This is not name-it-and-claim-it prosperity gospel. This is just the simple fact that I am limited and I am small and I am little and God is not. And so the things that I can't understand, He can. And the things that I have trouble hoping for, He already knows and is already doing. And when I can't figure out the path from here to there, where I am versus the way things are supposed to be, not even just the way that I think things are supposed to be, but the way that He says things are supposed to be, God is already in every day, in every decision, in every choice, moving things, right? In his gentle, loving, subtle way. He's still taking me there. He's still taking us there. He's still taking our world there. Joy is dynamic. It has to be. It has to move and stretch and work its way into the twists and turns of our days while at the same time not being restricted by the current situations that I find myself in. Our joy, that's why joy is new every morning along with the mercies of God. That is why we rejoice in the Lord that this is the day that he has made because every day is different and every day is new and every day is unknown and that's why the command is to rejoice. Because you don't know. Because I don't know. All we have is the promise that God is already doing what I can't understand yet. God has already conceived the thing that I cannot conceive of. I chose this picture behind me because I think it's probably my favorite Advent picture. I love the richness and colors. I love the subtlety and the expression of the small details. I love that in an image... It represents all the things that I long for. Hope, peace, joy, love. (coughs) But one of the things I love most about it is that you can't see Jesus yet, but you can. He's just this big bulge in Mary's belly. But look at Mary's eyes. And look at her smile. And look at her tenderness with Eve. There is so much gospel of Jesus there, and he hasn't even arrived yet. But just in his conception, he's already changing everything. That's what joy does. It highlights the reality for us that the inconceivable has already been conceived by God. 
And I see it in this song that Mary and Elizabeth share in this sacred moment where each of them recognizes that God is doing something hidden but powerful in each of them. We call this song the Magnificat because that's what the first line and the whole song is about. My soul magnifies the Lord. I think there's a relationship between our ability to experience the reality of joy and our resolution to magnify God. Magnifying God in our feelings, magnifying God in our experiences, magnifying God in our situations, magnifying God when everything about me wants to say, do you not see what's happening to me? I do see what's happening to you. I do see what's happening to you. Will you go ahead and place me on the highest place anyway? Will you go ahead and magnify me? To put it plainly, at some point, both Mary and Elizabeth have to make a choice to put the character of God over anything else, especially the strangeness that both of them are undergoing. And they do it regularly. They do it in the small stuff. And then when the big things come, when God brings a special ordained child to this very, very old woman, and when he brings a child that is his very self to a young, unwed teenager, they're able to magnify God and to truly rejoice in him. And they're only able to do it when the big thing comes because they made the decision to magnify God every day. We aren't just able to pull my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God out of nowhere. It's part of the rhythms that God designed for our lives. That's why we have the command, this is the day that the Lord has made. Take joy in it. This is not some form of Christian denial. This is not some willful ignorance. Joy doesn't go whistling in the dark. We don't see Mary denying the real danger or the real difficulty. She is anything but Mary meek and mild, as we have like put her, I guess, colloquially kind of pigeonholed her off here. Okay? No. She doesn't, she, she doesn't just sit there and, and just blindly, she throws herself forcefully into the care of God. This song is not a half-hearted praise chorus. The lyrics do not go, my soul thanks God and I trust that somehow he's going to get me through this. That is, if, if you're hearing that, you need to reread this song. This is a song of calculated, reckless abandonment to the purposes of God. She immerses herself in the greater story of God. Her language clues us into her heart. When Mary sings of God's care for her, God's care of God's people, or God's care of all people and all creation, she sings from forward to back. Never is the phrase, God will, uttered. It is always, God has. Not to get too Greek geek on you, okay? But we're using a particular aorist term here. And aorist means timeless, in essence, when you get down to it. We think of it as past tense, but it's bigger than that. (coughs) When you use aorist in the Greek... It just means something that is outside of the bounds of time. It just is. It is past. It is present. It is future. It's all of it. It just is. And I love that. So when she says, when she says, God has done these things, it is 
It was already going to happen. It is already happening. It already will happen. Like it just, it just is, you know, again, not to get too Thanos. It is inevitable. All right. Like it is. And I love that. She looks back on the men and the women who came before her. Their lives were hard. They were full of sorrow and confusion, but they were also full of something more. They were full of God's enduring love, working for his glory and their fullness day in and day out all the time. He has helped his servant Israel in his kindness, always remembering his promise to Abraham and his children forever. And so this girl projects herself forward, projects Israel forward, projects the world forward. She sees streams in the desert, a temple among the ruins, a highway full of nations coming in. She sees Isaiah's future, her future, our future as reality to God. It's already happened. It's as good as done, even though she hasn't even seen his face in the manger yet much less seen his agony on the cross, much less seen him breaking bread or washing feet in the upper room, much less seen him ascending from the hilltop into heaven with the empty tomb. But he's there, and he's on the move. As surely as he is wriggling in her belly, he is already doing stuff. He already has done stuff. Salvation, restoration, redemption, good is done. Are we willing to consider God's reality that way? Are we willing to take hold of that kind of joy? Not a fleeting feeling, not something that is is oily and slippery and is hard to grasp onto as it seems so much of our positive emotions in this world are. They're so dependent on how things are going at any given moment. What we have or what we don't have. How we feel or how we don't feel. What somebody else did or didn't do to me or for me or with me or whatever. Are we willing to take hold of this kind of joy? Do we want it bad enough to take hold of it? Because we, we have the invitation to basically stand in two places with this. This kind of joy gives us the ability to put one foot in how things are and one foot in how things are going to be. One foot in the conceivable and one foot in the inconceivable being conceived. And sometimes that tension hurts really, really terribly. It stretches us very hard. Acknowledging that hurt is an understanding of the reality of the Christian life. Joy makes space for pain as well. Joy doesn't deny pain. Instead, it acknowledges it and it calls them birthing pains. We talked from our study in Revelation about being in the thrashing season. Do you remember that? The head of the serpent has been crushed, but the body still slings about and flings about and coils and squeezes. And sometimes we get caught in the thrashing. But joy acknowledges something else. It acknowledges that those thrashes are there, but it acknowledges that those dead thrashes are also birthing pains of something else, something better. God is not dead. He is not done. He is still creating. Joy acknowledges our past 
It enlightens our present by connecting it to the unseen future as well as the unseen present. Not just what God will do, but what God already has done, what God is doing. Now, admittedly, I haven't seen all of Isaiah's prophecy. I haven't seen physical blind eyes opened. I haven't physically heard, watched as deaf ears were unstopped. I have seen people see and hear Jesus and enter into a new world. I haven't seen the lame leap like a deer. But I have seen weak hands made strong to hang on one more day. I have seen weak knees made firm to rise up against great struggle and fear and anxiety. I have heard the story of the young adult who tells of their Sunday school faith that endured the trials and grew from a small seed to a flourishing life. I've heard the widow who learned that abundant life in Christ has flourished through decades of marriage, but it can also sustain them in the years of life alone. I'm humbled as I stand at the graves of others, as I stand at Emory's grave. And I hear broken hearts of grief, even my heart, still say Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. That's the joy that we have to take hold of. That's the joy that is ours. The joy of the Lord who still is working, who is still creating, even in ways that we can't see or even imagine. This is not the joy that is just ours to have and to hold. It is also the joy that we embody and we live and we speak of and we proclaim. It's the powerful words that get spoken through the frail lips. It's the priceless treasure that we carry around in our cracked and feeble little jars of clay. It's the joy that we root ourselves in when we speak up for those the world wants to silence, when we give of ourselves to others in ways that shatter the idolatry of selfishness. It's what we have that everyone around us is looking for during this season. They may not even know it, but they are. And we have it. And it's ours to give freely because as much as we give it away, God will still give us more. And so may joy captivate you, church. May it stream out of you. May it lead others to its source in Jesus. May the ransom of the Lord, you, me, and everybody, come to Zion singing songs of joy. Our soul magnifies the Lord. Our spirit rejoices in God. Amen? Amen. Amen.